Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look at every great story of an adventure or every great tale, there was some kind of mission. And it might have sometimes only been seen in retrospect, but it was there. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend John Levy. He's a behavior scientist who studies influence and adventure. We're going to discuss something called the 2 a.m. principle, also the title of his book, how to create a life of adventure, filtering in the right people into your circle, how to politely cut ties with the wrong people, and breaking self-imposed limitations in our lives. So enjoy this one with John Levy, and with that, welcome to AOC. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, in your relationships, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss things like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the US, you can text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444, or go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's John Levy. John, first of all, Tell us what you do in one sentence. I'm a human behavior scientist, and I study the science of influence and the science of adventure. So when I think of things like adventure, I kind of think, all right, this is not a scientific thing. You know, it, it doesn't seem like a scientific endeavor. Yeah, most people actually say that, you know, one thing will happen, then another, and it all comes together through serendipity. It's a matter of chance. And isn't the beauty of adventure that it's unexpected? And yeah, there's a lot of unexpected things. But you have to ask yourself, if adventure was purely something that happened by chance, if the most exciting and thrilling moments of your life really happened by pure serendipity and nothing else, then all of us would live similarly exciting lives. Your chances of having an adventure would be just as high as mine. That's true, right? But Because of the laws of probability, essentially. And the fact is that we all know people who live wonderfully quiet lives, and we know people who live really exciting, thrilling lives which means that the people who are living exciting lives are probably doing certain things or embodying certain characteristics that the rest of us aren't. And so I figured if I could figure out what those are, if I could systemize it or discover the underlying principles, then we could all live more exciting, fulfilling, and thrilling lives whenever we wanted to. This whole thing sort of presupposes that adventure is a desirable thing. And I, I would agree that it is, but is there some sort of absolute that we can say like, look, your life is not exciting, therefore you're missing out on something. Yes and no. So I'll explain two aspects. One is every human being has a different tolerance for novelty and excitement. Right. Some people get really uncomfortable seeing things at heights while other people want to go base jumping. So I can't say something in totality for all people, but I began by having to define what an adventure is, and I'd like to share that so that people get an understanding of my perspective. Yeah, let's define adventure, because it's hard to say if something's important when we're all thinking of different things. So I looked around for a unified definition. I couldn't find one. But I was able to come up with the following. Something is an adventure if it is, one, exciting and remarkable, meaning remarkable means it's worth talking about, right? Actually remarking yeah. about. Like something that you would tell a friend, you're never going to friggin' believe this. Exactly. And nowadays we see remarkable as something that's post-worthy or Instagram-worthy <laughs> or Snap-worthy. Right. Right? And what's important about that is that fundamentally as a species, we've shared our knowledge through an oral history. So unless something was remarkable, then it wasn't culturally significant. So that's the first part. The second is it must possess adversity and or risk. And the interesting thing about risk 
is that you can experience a lot of perceived risks without being in any direct danger. So I could go skydiving, which is scary, but incredibly safe versus trying to wrestle an alligator, which is scary and insanely stupid and dangerous. And then the third characteristic is it brings about growth. The person you are at the end is different than the person you are at the beginning. And I'm sure you've discussed this a lot with guests that it's the growth of it, the fact that you get to be a different person or a better person at the end of something that makes it all worth it. That the gift of the journey isn't just the story and the experience, but also that you have an expanded capacity at the end. Sure. And of course, the people that you're with also are going to have some sort of shared bond. I mean, it's like every movie is about that, especially every guy movie is especially about that. Look at The Hangover. A terrible set of occurrences. Nobody would actually want that to happen to themselves or their group. And yet you'd love it. And at the end, everybody's like just that much closer for it. And definitely it changed individuals. And they make a point of that in the plot line. Like, oh, he dumped the girl that was bad for him. And this other guy quit the job he hated or whatever. How we know it adventure is important is that it's so culturally significant. Adventures are about and tend to follow a really specific storyline, either success or failure, but you have to overcome some kind of great obstacle. Right, sure. Anything written about in a history book is some sort of significant event, but often involving some kind of adventure, although often of like the harrowing, terrible kind, like war or something. So there's some element of conflict or something to overcome. And that's regardless if we're talking about The Hobbit or it's talking about the way that you needed to prove to the girl that you were the right person for. There are ups and downs and there are All those are essential to the narrative of our lives. And fundamentally, we're wired for stories. We are drawn by them. We tell them. That's how we pass down our knowledge. An adventure isn't a thing. It isn't something that exists like a physical object. It's the way that we see the narrative of our life. And how exciting it is depends on what the person wants. Uh, But if you actually look at the characteristics of an adventure, a lot of them tie into this research done by literally cannot pronounce this person's name to save my life. Uh, his first name is... Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. Yeah. The flow state. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. We are familiar. And if you look at the characteristics of flow, you are in a peak optimal performance state when you are doing something just outside of your skill set. In that state, you have time dilation or expansion. You have a feeling of being part of the experience and and able to distinguish from yourself from the experience and so on. I'll be honest, the second you said I can't pronounce this guy's name, I was just going to say Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And, but then I thought, if I get it wrong, you're just going to be like, why would you guess this random guy? But it's always that guy. Whenever anybody says, ah, I just can't pronounce this guy's name, but it's actually in 100% of cases been Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And his research is absolutely phenomenal. And let me tell you, if anybody's going to read a book about flow state, do not read his book because it is by far, like it's just so uninteresting. There's a book called The Rise of Superman. Yes, by Stephen Kotler, who's been on the show. We did a whole episode about that one. Uh, So that's the one I recommend and uh, highly encourage people read it. Yes, you can find it here on The Art of Charm. (laughs) So the reason that I think it's important is that in general, we're seeing that people want less and less to be spoken at and more and more to grow from the experience of learning. And I think the difference between sitting in a seminar and taking notes and going to a boot camp where you actually walk away a grown person with a new skill set. And so when we look at travel, it's not just about going to a beautiful location. It's now that I'm at this location, what am I going to do to make it extraordinary? And it doesn't matter if you're married with kids and need to find fun activities for the entire family to participate in. Well, let the family grow through that experience. And it doesn't have to be perfect and great, but what is the science of making it extraordinary and remarkable and fun? And so if we're going to go down the path of living a life that's out of the ordinary, that's actually noteworthy, then we're going to be putting ourselves in situations that aren't necessarily the most comfortable all the time, because that's the issue. We need to be willing to grow. We need to be willing to be uncomfortable. And so when I looked at what the science of adventure was, I discovered that there were four stages to every adventure. And each stage had specific characteristics that when you apply them, make life exciting. I'll give you an example. Yeah. So for the people who say adventures happen by chance, I'm going to challenge that really simply. I claim that there's the first stage of any adventure is actually putting the right elements in place so that anything can happen. Not necessarily that it will, but so that it can. What are these elements? Like we're kind of setting the stage for adventure, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the elements that need to be in place? The most important one by far is 
selecting the right team of people. I mean, the right group of friends can make a terrible party awesome. And the wrong group of people can make the most amazing event or experience absolutely miserable. Yes. I think everybody's experienced something like that at some point where you're somewhere and you go, man, I wish I was here with somebody different. I feel like that's the story of many people's lives. And so here's here's some simple tips around this. One is, I know you guys have like super close friends that you love and you want to keep hanging out with them. And I encourage you to keep doing that, except be aware of certain things. One is you may have that friend that always causes drama, is always getting into a fight, is always complaining, whatever it is. Those people are just not healthy for having an adventurous Right, day. yeah. You want to have them at your reunions? Great. You want to have them in group setting? Whatever it is, that's fine. But just be aware that if you want to have like a really extraordinary experience, they're going to pull you out of it. Right. What I've noticed is that a lot of dramatic people, it's almost like a sense of control thing where they're like, oh, this isn't about me. And it looks like it's about attention, but really it's about things being about them so that they feel like they're in control. And it's kind of the opposite of adventure, because if you're trying to have this adventure where nobody has control and that's the fun part, those people will often figure out some way to create a and manufacture a crisis everything grinds to a halt it becomes about them and they regain some semblance of control and i think it's subconscious i think it's a weird subconscious so here's mechanism. the interesting thing a crisis is a fine thing to have the crisis can be a byproduct of one of the other characteristics you can have a challenge to overcome that's no problem but if your team isn't gung ho about going after it and they're not the right group of people to pursue it then it's miserable. If they're the ones creating the crisis and that's bringing the team down, then there's a problem. Yeah. The second characteristic, the first stage, like when we're establishing things, is to pick a location that actually induces some kind of excitement. And what we know is that our brains operate differently in new environments. Actually, just being in an environment that's unfamiliar causes our brain to want to explore. And this is the theory, right? Is that since we're alive now and we understand our environment. As long as we continue to understand our environment, we'll continue to be able to survive and reproduce. Sure. And so when you go into a new environment, you get very curious to understand it and explore. But you'll also notice that you'll be willing to take on characteristics that you would never take on otherwise. Like what? How, how do you mean? I'll give you an example. The number of people who say, oh, I, I've had a one night stand, but it was on vacation. Right. Okay. Right, right, right. Like within their environment, they won't do it because there's a gossip circle. And there's social consequences. Exactly. Exist. But now that you're at Burning Man, all of a sudden you'll cover yourself in paint and walk around naked. So you get these contextual behaviors. And the further you are from home, the more willing you are to participate in the local customs. Not only that, but the more people are open to being in touch with each other and communicate. So let's say I'm in uh, New York. I see somebody and Chances are I'm not going to just talk to some random stranger. But if that same person was in Japan, there's a very high chance that I'll speak to them because it's very clear that both of us are foreigners mm -hmm. and there's a good chance I'll also realize that they're American. Right. You and I both traveled alone a lot. I think I spent around three years abroad making friends along the way in a lot of non-Western countries. And it's funny because, you know, now that we have Facebook, you kind of keep in touch with some of the people that you're friends with in another place that you became friends with because they were like the other American person there. And it's funny because when I look at those friends and stuff, I'm like, yeah, we never would have made friends in the United States. And sometimes that's really cool because I have all these weird, quirky friends that I never would have probably given a chance to because I wouldn't have known to do that. But there's also a, a whole group of people where I'm like, this was just a convenience thing because we both spoke English. Absolutely. All right. You say you're a scientist. Give me an example of some of the scientific method in action here. Well, so there's a few things. First of all, I research what other scientists have done. And then I look at how to actually apply it. So a couple of years back, I'm in Nice, France. I don't speak the language. I come literally for the night. I arrive at about 11 at night and I don't know anybody. I've done no research on the town and I've made it my goal to either convince a stranger to put me up for the night or I'm sleeping on the street. I've done that. I love that. That's I've awesome. only slept on the street a few times. <laughs> so I arrive at Nice and I know nothing. I have no idea where to go. I'm walking through the streets and realizing that the streets are empty. I start looking at like doorways thinking which one would make the most comfortable place to sleep. Oh man. I see this empty jazz bar and I walk in and I ask the guy like, hey, do you know of anything going on? And he goes, oh yeah, if you walk down like a few blocks, there's this place, it's like an expat bar. 
you'll be able to find people. I walk in and it is packed. It's two rooms, uh, main bar area, and the back room has a live cover band. And there's three rows of three bark benches and people are standing on them, screaming and yelling and dancing. And it is out of control. I'm like, I've found the place. I'm going to meet Jackpot. people here. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm in luck. And there's this one girl that every guy is walking up to her and her friends trying to hit on her with no luck. And inside the back room, it's 90 degrees in there. Everybody is sweating their butts off. And I'm like, okay, this would make the most epic story if I can figure out a way to meet this girl. I turn to the bartender and I have him deliver a giant bottle of cold water to her and her friends. And she looks at it. The bartender points to me. She's super confused. She walks up to me and she's like, what's going on here? Why not alcohol? Yeah. And I was like, you guys seemed really hot. Because I'm a sheep. (laughs) (laughs) You know me too well, Jordan. Uh, So we start chatting and I'm in like the position that every dude in the entire place wants to be in. Except I forgot one thing that the French don't necessarily learn English. Oh, crap. These are locals. Yeah. And so with every sentence I speak, I'm sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into quicksand. And I realize like, I got to pull the ripcord. Like, there's no way this is going to work out. This just isn't going to happen. And so I excuse myself and I go around trying to talk to people. But person after person, like either they don't speak English or they're nobody I'd want to go home with. And eventually it's like 1.30 or so. And there are these four guys at the bar. And every time I went to grab a drink, they were there. So they look kind of familiar. I treat a round of shots and I'm like, to the adventure, let's make this an epic night. And next thing I know, I'm going shot for shot with them throughout the streets of Nice, bar after bar. And we're like four or five bars in, they hop into a cab and they give an address and I have no idea where we're going. They leave the cab, left me with the bill. Oh, that was nice of them. Gentlemen, by every standard. And uh, I pay and I get out and it's completely dark. I have no idea where I am. And the, I guess the motion sensor lights kick in and we're on the border of Monaco at a three-story chateau with a full service staff. Oh, sweet. Good thing you had motion lights. You could have just turned around and got back in the car and left. (laughs) I'd have been like, nah, oh well, was a good night. Take me home. So I, I realized I'd never asked who these guys were. And it turns out that they're like extended members of the royal family and like lords and like all this crazy stuff. And so, you know, one of my rules is that wherever I am, I have to provide value. And so I cook breakfast for us essentially at four o'clock in the morning. We jump into the pool and they give me this incredible room to crash for the night. And I'm still in touch with these guys. It's pretty incredible. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Now, back to the show. Yeah, so like you're going to the bathroom, there's a moose head over it or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, I'm picturing. It's like gold plated yeah. everything. The The kitchen is the size of like four New York City apartments. Yeah, thought you were going to be like, and they let me sleep in their doorway. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't have to worry. But the whole experiment there was twofold. One is, what are the impact of constraints on the quality of our experience? And people think that the more options we have, the happier we are. But from Barry Schwartz's yeah, research. Paradox of choice, right? Precisely that some choices are good, but more choices aren't necessarily better. And by limiting our options, we actually have to become creative in the way that we engage with our environment. So if I live in a small town, getting to go to the same bars every night isn't interesting. But all of a sudden, if I have to put constraints on my behavior, like I'm not allowed to pay for any of my own drinks, all of a sudden going into that new bar, I'm forced to act in a different way so that I can convince people to do that. Where's a good place to start with this kind of thing? Because I think a lot of people who say, all right, I'm going to try this, but oh my gosh, I'm going to sleep on the street. Like that's not something where you just one day you're like, I'm going to give that a shot. I feel like you might want to start smaller. Or do you disagree? Oh, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think that everybody has a different tolerance for novelty and for anxiety and all yeah. these other things and stress. So the key is first and foremost to understand your comfort zone. Yes. And you want to go for something that's at the limit of your comfort zone. If it's too far out, it'll scare you. Right. It'll scare you out of it. It's good to scare you a little bit, but you don't want to get scared out of it. Yeah. And then if it's too familiar, it's just going to be boring. If my goal for the night is to go to five bars and have five drinks, that's not interesting. If my goal is to convince people to buy me all of my drinks throughout the night, that's interesting. If my goal is to get free airfare to go travel around the world, that's outside of most people's skill set. Right. So I wouldn't recommend it because you won't actually attempt it. I would add a good way to start doing this is to be with other people who are much more further along the path than you are so that you're maybe within or just outside their comfort zone and yet you have a safety net because they've been there, done that. So it reminds me of my friend, Matt. I, I meet up with my friend, Sailor Joe. He's kind of a recurring character on the show, but he's sailed around the world and he's lived in like these sketchiest places on planet Earth because he's a boat captain. So me and him meet up in Montenegro a long time ago. I think this is like the week we met. We decide to walk to Albania and go through Kosovo. He's kind of like, all right, let's do it. And I'm like, all right, this is a little outside my comfort zone. Meanwhile, there's this kid from California named Matt who had only been to Germany and otherwise had been like a nice, good little Jewish boy that lived in like suburban Los Angeles or Beverly Hills. So he's got a bag because he had moved from Germany to travel a little bit and he decided to bring all of his earthly possessions. So he travels with this giant suitcase, not like a backpack or anything. So me, Sailor Joe, and Matt, with all of his earthly possessions, walk over the uh, Montenegro-Albania border and then end up doing a trip there all the way through Kosovo. And he said it was the scariest thing he's ever done in his whole life, even though it was totally fun and awesome. But imagine going from like Beverly Hills to Germany and then going to Eastern Europe with two guys you just met. That's his culture shock. Yeah, he was legitimately freaking out half the time. And anybody who tried to rip us off, scam us, or back us into a corner, he fell for every single freaking thing that happened. Everything. 
the, even the wallet inspector? I mean, it, it was like a drunk guy who couldn't walk right would come up screaming and talking to himself and be like, you guys want a tour? And he'd be like, sure, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. I think I just wanted to make the point that it makes sense for people to travel or be companions of people who are maybe going to pull you outside your comfort zone, but still keep it safe enough for you to go way outside of yours for a little bit of faster growth. It's like having a coach. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think this really goes to demonstrate that in the first stage of every adventure, and I claim that they're four, in the first stage, it's about putting the right elements in place. So in that case, we see that the right team of people, you want people who will push you, who will get you to do things that you don't even necessarily think you want to do and to push you in a safe and healthy way, right? Also in, in a new location, like for me, Nice was completely new. We operate differently and we have the freedom to experience and attempt things that we normally wouldn't. The other two characteristics of when you're establishing an adventure or putting the right elements in place is to set an underlying mission or goal. And so that mission could be convince a stranger to give you their underwear, or that mission could be perform three acts of kindness for a stranger, or that mission could be raise $100 by singing on the street and donate it to a cause. Whatever it is, whatever your mission is, it needs to be something that everybody can get behind. Because throughout the course of a real adventure, there are going to be lulls, there's going to be ups and downs, and you need to know that your team is behind whatever it is that you're trying to attempt. Why do you need the mission again? How come people can't just play it by ear? You can, but saying, I want to go have fun isn't a goal. Right, that's true. Having fun is a byproduct of doing something else. Fun is something you create. You don't have to have a mission, but by having a goal or something that drives the interaction, it causes you to interact with strangers. It causes you to do things that are outside of your comfort zone. So with that goal in mind, right? It wasn't that like in The Hobbit, Bilbo was like, I'm going to go for a walk. He's like, no, I have to go to Mount Doom to drop off this ring or whatever his mission was. The point is that if you look at every great story of an adventure or every great tale, there was some kind of mission. And it might have sometimes only been seen in retrospect, but it was there. And then the constraints that we applied to the situation are the, the limitations that cause us to be more creative in the way that we interact. So what if you could go out, but you couldn't talk to anybody you already knew, or you could only spend a certain amount of money, or you couldn't go places that you've already been to? By limiting those behaviors, you actually force yourself to be more creative in the way that you interact. And thereby, places that you've been to a hundred times before can seem like new and fresh environments. Right. That makes a lot of sense, right? If you live in a small town and you're constantly complaining about, there's only two bars in this town, you can actually expand your social horizon by just making it harder or different, mm -hmm. cutting out chief constraints like, oh, I'm going to walk everywhere in this place. And that might not work for every place, but I'm going to walk everywhere tonight. That way you're interacting with people on the street the entire time. Or one of the things I love to do is I carry around a deck of cards or a die and I let fate decide. Nice. Or gravity okay. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> statistics. <laughs> but literally like whatever the die says or whatever the card is correlated to, I'll walk into a restaurant and say, I'll pick whatever's on this page if it's diamonds and whatever's on this page if it's clubs. And then I pick the numbered item. Having these goals or missions or even going to new locations have a huge impact. Like I'll literally never forget this for the rest of my life. It was July 7th, 2014. I was with my best friend, Liam, and we were traveling through Stockholm, Arlanda Airport to go to visit my family in Tel Aviv, Israel. We're picking up a few things at Duty Free and we're about to check out. And we come to the counter and there's this lovely uh, girl sitting behind the counter. And she asked for my ticket because she had to make sure that I was leaving the European Union because of tax purposes. Right, yeah, that's common. And so she says, ticket. And I pass her my ticket and she goes, oh, Israel. And I go, yeah. And I'd come from like a nightclub a few hours before because it's five something in the morning. I go, yeah, do you want to come? And she goes, yeah. And I say, great, then come. And she goes, well, I'm a grad student and uh, it's really expensive. And I, I don't know what was going through my mind, but I was like, what if I paid for your trip? Oh my God. And she goes, yeah. Sure. Why not? Yeah, why and not? And so I pull up my phone and I start searching for flights, but the line's backing up. So Liam starts bagging people's things up. Now this is causing a commotion. So Bagging people's things up? She's a checkout person at Duty oh. Free. Oh, got it. Continue. <laughs> so he's bagging people's things up. It's causing a commotion. So now all the other lines are staring at us and all the other registers, like the other checkout people. And this guy is 
comes up and he starts yelling at us. He's like, you can't be doing this. It's a security risk. We have to bag our own things. Security's going to ask us because we're going to Israel. Oh, it's just like a random guy. Yeah, like just some random dude who is checking out. And uh, and so I'm freaking out, thinking I'm going to get this girl fired. So I'm like, when's your break? She says, 25 minutes. I say, great, come and meet me over at the local, it was like a Heineken bar or something. Right. 25 minutes later, she actually shows up. Wow. We start booking her ticket, and then we realize there's one major problem. I don't know her name yet. Oh, yeah, there's a problem, yeah. This person had agreed to travel with a complete stranger to a country at the time being bombed by Hamas rockets after knowing them for 10 seconds. This is ridiculous. What ended up happening was incredible. We booked her ticket. She had to go home to pick up her passport. 24 hours later, she had left her job. She was on a flight to Israel. She comes. I had no idea how I was going to explain this to my family. Yeah. You were going to visit your family? Yeah. We were meeting up for a reunion. 15 people, person family at this point. And there's this random Swedish girl who comes and joins us. And she ends up traveling for a week with us around Tel Aviv, Ein Hod, which is this artist colony, a lot in the south of France. We go to Petra in Jordan. Oh, cool. And what was absolutely incredible was she like became one of our family's closest friends. And on the fourth or fifth day, I walk into a room with, and with Liam and she's crying. And I had no idea what was going on because she's always so positive. And I go, what's going on? She says, I just found out my dad's back in the hospital. Oh, no. And it turns out that her dad was dying of ALS and her mom was taking care of him, but she had stayed closer to home uh, and went to school there to a school she didn't want to go to uh, just so that she could be close to him. And for the past several years, she never really took any time off or did anything for herself. So this was like her one gift to herself. So it turns out that it wasn't my charm or (laughs) anything like that that uh, appealed to her. It was kind of just getting away. And what was incredible was I knew kind of like I had an idea. So I took her bridge jumping. There's this place that's like illegal to bridge jump in a lot. And so Liam and I took her. And uh, I'll never forget, like we were walking up to the bridge. She had no idea it was happening. And I turned to her I was, as we're crossing the bridge. Uh, it's like 11 at night or something. Or no, it's probably like three o'clock in the morning. And I turned to her and I go, listen, in a moment, I'm going to take off all of my clothes except for my underwear. I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing and pass it to Liam. And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, just trust me. And so she does it because after being around me for five days, she knows like there's crazy. Okay, I'm probably not going to die. And so uh, we climb over the fence. And she's like, are we really doing this? And before like, I even acknowledged her question, as we counted to three, we jumped off. And like an entire crowd of people had now gathered to stare yeah, at us. To stare at two naked people standing on a bridge, yeah. Yep. And uh, we climbed up the rocks, pushed our way through the crowd, and had to like jet because it's illegal to do and there's a police patrol. And she was like a completely different person after that, completely invigorated. But that's, I think, one of the reasons that I love adventure so much is that no matter what's going on in your life, pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone can really make a huge difference for people. We talked about not having dramatic people in your group. How else can we shape and make sure we've got the right group primed for adventure? Do you have a litmus test or anything like that for including people in your group? Absolutely. So there's a few things. One is I try to keep the gender ratio even just because if I want to walk into certain places, it makes it easier. A lot of clubs or bars will get upset if there are too many guys and no women. Also, I try to have people from diverse backgrounds because what happens is that then each of them have different knowledge or skill sets. So we're able to connect with more people. So if we come from a social or ethnically diverse group, it opens up options. But then there's litmus tests, like the ones we used to have in science class to quickly test if something's an acid or a base, where if I want to figure out if somebody's worth interacting with, I don't want to spend, dedicate two hours only to find out that they're totally lame. So if I see a stranger, sometimes I'll just wave to them. And if they wave back, I know they're open to interacting. Or if I meet somebody and we're chatting, I'll ask like, what's the craziest thing you've ever done on a dare? Or what's the wildest thing on your bucket list? And those things will give me a sense of what are they up for? Are they the type of person who will go skinny dipping? Or are they the type of person who like the idea of an exciting night is getting together with three friends and sharing a bottle of wine? Right. And that's fine, but it just might not be what I'm looking for. Those people won't tell you what the craziest thing they've ever done is on a dare because they'll be like, do I know you? Yeah. Why are you talking to me? Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't a search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now, back to the show. The person who waves back and then says, yeah, I XYZ'd, and you're like, dang, that's highly illegal. Yes. That person's always down. (laughs) That person's always down. The stories are kind of funny. It's like, oh, I snuck into a park at night and you know, got really drunk or played playground games or stuff like that. Set up a trampoline. Yeah. Full of homeless people. (laughs) I mean, there's some stories of people that we know that are not far away from things like that, that where you're just like, how are you alive? Or how are you not in jail? I often wonder, because over the past three years or so, I have been crushed by a bull in Pamplona. Oh, yeah. Almost died. Six months of physical therapy. I almost fell off of the ghost tower of Bangkok. What is that? So there's this building that was constructed in Bangkok in like the 90s. And oh, it's just empty? It's a, a skeleton of a building, but it's oh, wow. 53 stories, but you, you have to essentially bribe the security guy to let you up. And then you climb 49 stories, which is exhausting. And then when you get to the top, you have a 360 view of Bangkok, except there's partially built floors with holes in the floors. So like, oh my God, so that's like, so terrifying. You are so scared that your legs are jelly and you're trying to like, climb but the only way to climb is to pass this like two foot gap and Ugh, it's no it's craziness way. but you're climbing on like broken equipment that was left there that like a child slide that somebody like half propped up and there's exposed nails it's like my jeans still have holes and rips and it's it was amazing i would just never do that <laughs> maybe i'm the quiet bottle of wine guy even <laughs> though i don't like wine compared to that i'm a wine guy i would definitely never do anything like that um i on that same trip i ate uh scorpions bugs yeah that. see that stuff no problem like i would order that in a restaurant i certainly would not go up there's a lot of things wrong with that that's that's like an episode of fear factor for me and then not too long ago i set my trips polar swim record so i went to antarctica and i swam in zero degree water for yeah. longer than anybody else i lost feeling in my legs and arms and it was that type of thing no problem going to north korea on vacation no problem heights not doing it, not doing it. Heights in a, in a giant building like that, not doing it. But how do you get people to be more open-minded when it comes to adventure? I mean, at our Charm, we have a concept called shaping where we kind of persuasion technique and we use things like that, like this person works sort of priming them to do certain things. Do you do that with your adventure crew at all? Do you have ways besides just going, come on, man, what are you, some kind of wuss? I mean, besides peer pressure, so, what methods do we have to get people to be a little bit more open-minded? Uh, one is get them talking about the exciting and adventurous things that they do. Because by getting groups, especially in conversations about these things, then it seems like the standard mode of operation. The other is get them in the habit of saying yes to stuff, right? So like, would you like to try this? Would you like to try that? Whatever it is, 
but there's something called the winner effect. And winner this, effect. Yeah, I love this. This is a fascinating study. And it works like this. In nature, when an animal wins a battle, its body floods with testosterone. That causes them to be prepped and more likely to win their next battle. The loser has lower levels of testosterone. The testosterone effect keeps happening more and more and more, and you have to be careful because after each battle, you'll have a higher level of testosterone, but it'll cause animals to spend excessive amounts of time in the open, or which will get them eaten by a predator, or it causes them to end up in fights that they then get killed from. Now, the way that affects us is I was the victim of the winner effect because I did the running of the bulls and I made it through the run just fine. So I flooded with testosterone. Then I ran up to a bull and I slapped it on its ass. Yeah, that was unwise. And I flooded with testosterone again. And then I decided at the very end, what would be clever would be to let the bull jump over me as it entered the stadium. And the first time it did it, there was no problem. But the second time it slipped and crushed me. So I was a victim of the winner effect. But the winner effect can have a really positive experience as well. So if you want a group to continuously be doing more interesting and more exciting things, get a few wins under their belt, smaller stuff. And then they're more inclined to participate in more daring and more daring things. What kind of examples of wins can we get that are really relatively easy? Uh, getting somebody to talk to a stranger. That's like a, an easy one, right? There are certain kinds of challenges. So I'm a big supporter of challenges. So the first stage of an adventure is you establish things and put them in place. The second stage is you expand your comfort zone. You push boundaries. So you cross some kind of social, physical, or emotional boundary. And the third stage, you maximize the emotional value of the environment you're in. And one of the ways you do that is through challenges. You can also do it through surprises and so on. How do you recognize that somebody has boundaries anyways? Or are you just assuming that everyone does? I would assume that unless you have a neurological anomaly, uh, there are people who are born without fear, but they tend to injure themselves. They tend to get hit by cars, I would imagine, yeah. It doesn't occur to them that something is dangerous. If something triggers a fear response, it's probably on the edge of your comfort zone. Yeah. And so look at what makes you uncomfortable and you're probably in the right realm. And one of my favorite things is I say, if it scares you, it's probably a good reason to do it. But how do we know when to stop pushing or how do we know when to stop pushing ourselves as well? Because sometimes you're supposed to be afraid because what you're doing is dangerous and you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Often I'd suggest you set your limits before the winter effect takes place. Ah, I see. So before you, you have the emotional reaction, you set a logical boundary. Yes. And I also say that about when you're drinking, right? You want to know what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with. So the next day you don't wake up and say, I really regret doing that. The drinking thing is very similar to the winter effect in that the more you do it, the worse your judgment actually yes, becomes. Exactly. You are an expert on drinking, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Mom, it's not actually true. I know you're going to be listening. An to academic this. expert on yes, drinking. Thank you. Purely theoretical. Purely theoretical for anybody who knows me. So yeah, set your boundaries before the winter effect takes place. This is especially important for us because we absorb behavior from people around us, you know, contextual habits. So if we set a, a limit and we adhere to that, we don't have to worry about other people setting their limit. We can actually maybe do this. And ideally, we all agree to do it beforehand. But if you stick to it, other people are likely to stick to it. And people that don't, might not make the cut for the next round of adventure as well. Anybody who gets too drunk or gets too anything, it doesn't just have to be drama, I think, like you said. Anybody who's not kind of playing by the rules, yeah, written or unwritten. I don't want to take care of people because they've been drinking too much or that if they're doing some drugs or something, I'll give them a one-time pass. And if I see that it's a habit, I don't want to be surrounded by, they need professional help. Yeah, I'm that's not, outside the realm. When we're talking about pushing our boundaries, coming out the other side of a different person, to what extent are you using travel or adventure to reinvent yourself and explore maybe other aspects of your personality? Because I think a lot of folks think, oh, when you travel, you're this fake person, or this person went here and tried to be a fake version of themselves. Reinventing yourself isn't necessarily fake. It's actually, in my opinion, exploring other aspects of your personality that might have been suppressed by your environment or the other people around you, probably a combination of the two. Are you using this in any significant way? Are you directing this? Are you conscious of this during the adventure process, if you will? Without a doubt. So I think that when we're in our home environment, let's call it, we tend to fall into very clear patterns. And there's a lot of aspects of our personality that doesn't get explored 
that could be from a fashion perspective, because everybody dresses the same in that environment, to maybe you have an interest in music or art or something along those lines that you would never get to experience within that home environment. And so a simple example of this, the number of people who come out of the closet when they go to college, right? There's an aspect of their environment that they don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing or exploring back home. And now in the, this new environment, they can reinvent themselves and actually express this aspect of themselves that otherwise would be unexplored. And so uh, when I travel, I actually take clothes with me that I normally wouldn't wear. And I try it out in these new environments to see if it matches my style and I actually feel comfortable. What, what, what kind of clothing are we talking about? So I used to never wear bow ties. But uh, now okay. I, like I was thinking them. like some lumberjack overalls or something terrible. Oh, God. I'm a pretty simple guy in terms of my fashion. I, I would agree with that based on the last few days of yeah. hanging out with you. So I wear jeans and a t-shirt, right? When I go to events, I'll dress more like rambunctiously. So I have a, a decent collection of very colorful pants, like bright red, bright blue, neon, like, and uh, I'll get jackets and suits. And like my friend Liam, we were at Art Basel a couple of years back and uh, we started buying full on matching outfits. And so we would spend one day of Art Basel dressed identically. And that's nothing I would ever do here. We, yeah, our friends would make fun of us. It's weird, but yeah. I, I dig it. I dig it. So it's uh, it's kind of like when you see bachelor parties, people are dressed really stupid. Silly t-shirts, hats, yeah. whatever. Yeah, of course. Because when you're traveling, you have the freedom to do things that you normally would never do. And I think it's great to explore those things because you'll find out if you like it or not. And if you like it, you can take it back home and it becomes part of who you are. And if you don't, then at least you've explored it. Why the title the 2am principle. What's that all about? The book was really well designed, by the way. Really cool cover, cool graphics, cutouts, text boxes. It's good for the ADD reader who's like, oh, this is a whole page of text. That's what I think whenever I turn a page in a book. Oh, that's oh awesome. it's a whole page of text. <laughs> the 2am principle came about because I kept hearing people say, nothing good happens after 2am. And the problem with that was when I looked at the craziest, wildest experiences from battling Kiefer Sutherland and Drunken Jenga to convincing that the girl from Duty Free to travel with me, to meeting those guys in Nice, to whatever it was, uh, ending up at a rave in the middle of Pennsylvania because I met some random girl riding a skateboard with a hula hoop going through Harrisburg. All those things happened after 2 a.m. I realized that it's not that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. It's that nothing good happens after 2 a.m. except the most epic experiences of her life. Why do you think that is? It's because there's a natural rhythm to the course of a day and night. In each city, 2 a.m. is actually a different hour. So like right. in Chicago, it's a little bit earlier. In Buenos Aires, it's later. But I think that there's a natural rhythm. At a certain point, I think inhibitions go down. And especially if people have been drinking, then alcohol kicks in. And if people have been spending time together, then there's this confluence of bonding that occurs. But at some point, there's this social characteristic that kicks in where the less likely becomes more likely if you've set up the conditions right. When 2 a.m. hits, I see it as this line in the sand where you have to decide either I'm going to ensure that this is something extraordinary or I'm going to go home. And the reason is, it comes back to research by this guy, Dan Kahneman, Nobel laureate, wrote Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And I'll give you a simple example. Imagine you go on a date with somebody and it's like three hours of awesomeness and you're having a great time and you couldn't be more excited about seeing them again. And then just at that last moment, you look into each other's eyes about to lean in for the kiss. And as you do, the person says the most God awful thing you have ever heard in your life. And you're like, I got to get out of here. So you get on the phone with your friend, Snapchat or whatever it is that you do, and they ask good date or bad date. And you say, bad date, terrible. But realize it was three hours of perfection and three seconds of terrible. So why is it that we view it as terrible? And it's because according to Kahneman and according to this research, we recognize the peaks of an experience and the end, but we can't really process the duration of pleasure or pain. So one of the most important things of an adventure, the last stage is continue, where you either go back and loop through or in a new location, or you end up ending with style. And the key is to end with style. Because if you push it too far, if you go till five o'clock in the morning and you're at a pizza place and you're like, oh, what a waste, then you'll wake up the next day exhausted, remembering it less fondly and wondering why 
you even bothered. If you learn to call it, and for me, that's at two o'clock in the morning, then you can get really great about remembering things positively and being more likely to participate in the future. That's interesting. It's kind of a microcosm inside adventure, right? Adventure being a high point, intensity point that you'll remember, time distortion in your life, and then having one of those in the adventure itself such that there's a identifiable crescendo that then becomes, remember that time we, and that's what that is. Yes. And then there's a story surrounding it probably on both ends or multiple stories surrounding it. And I guess if it's long enough, it can have multiple points, right? Mm -hmm. Jenga, Chateau, Elon Musk or whatever, right? <laughs> like that would be a hell of a night. In my case, it would have been Russell Simmons. But yeah. yeah, thanks so much. The 2 a.m. principle, much appreciated, man. That'll be linked up in the show notes as well. And I encourage everyone to check it out. I can personally say, look, John Levy is always going on adventures. He's always got stories. He really does have adventure down to his science. And uh, there's a lot of useful skills in the book. It's really well designed. I recommend it if you need a good read, especially if you're about to go traveling or something like that. There's a lot of useful little nuggets and skills in there. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank John on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as other resources, of course, in the book mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheap sheet for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone. I also post a lot on Twitter, a lot of things that never make it to the show, articles, insights, and of course, you can engage with me and producer Jason right there. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Our live program details for The Art of Charm boot camps, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. We sell out a few months in advance, although we do run programs almost every week. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch, get some info from us, plan ahead. And of course, we have the social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or again, in the USA, text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. We'll teach you all about improving your network, your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better connector, it'll make you a better networker, and it'll make you a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or in the US, text charmed to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 